You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, they're here too. They're my co-hosts. They're from Longform. Hey guys. What's up dudes? We got these awesome new uh, colored microphone covers. Evan's in pink. It's magical in here. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's, it's delightful. Really, it's festive. It's so different. Everything's <laughs> different. Max, I'm really uh, envious that you got to interview this week's guest. I talked to Sarah Stillman. Uh, Sarah writes for The New Yorker. She's only written for The New Yorker for a little while. And yet she has written uh, three incredible award-winning stomach punch pieces. And uh, it was really great to talk to her. We got a sponsor this week. Hulu Plus lets you binge on thousands of hit shows wherever you are on your TV, PC, smartphone, tablet. Uh, You can support this podcast by signing up for an extended free trial with Hulu Plus at huluplus.com forward slash longform. That's huluplus.com slash longform. I'm not. Uh, I'm not just hawking it. I use it myself. Uh, very, very excellent product. They've got all the Criterion movies as well. Uh, another excellent product. If you want to binge on your emails, you should use TinyLetter.com. It's an easy, simple, powerful way to send an email newsletter. It's from the good people at Mailchimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here's Max with Sarah Stillman. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Max. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been uh, it's been a long time coming. We've been trying to we've been trying to do this for a couple of weeks now. Oh yeah, but we've made it. We've made it happen. <laughs> and we're pulling off the uh, the Skype phone call. I'm really call. we're putting our faith in Skype, and uh, I'm proud of us. I'm proud of us, and <laughs> other people are going to be proud of us because you are the most requested guest. Oh God! I keep getting. I don't, getting, really don't believe that one, but thank it, you. It's true. It's true. <laughs> if you uh, if you happen to like, <laughs> I know you don't tweet, but if you happen to lurk on Twitter someday, you will see that that your name is the one that that comes up the most. People <laughs> are very eager to hear from you. God, well, I've loved the rest of the podcast, so I'm excited. All right, you've written these three pieces for the New Yorker, which I think is probably what we'll end up spending most of our time talking about. And one of them was about contract workers on U.S. bases. One of them was about confidential informants, and the most recent one was about asset forfeiture. And uh, all of them have to do with the massive problems and sort of civil rights and human rights issues in those three larger issues. Um, And I guess 
to start, I'm interested in like, what's your goal? Well, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I always tended to gravitate towards stories that are, I guess, at the margins of, kind of conventional mainstream storytelling insofar as, you know, each of each of the stories has been about something that, I mean, on the one hand was kind of in really clear public view. I mean, how many TV shows, like crime shows have been about confidential informants uh, or how many people have been deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan without seeing the massive, massive, massive service army logistics workers who are serving on U.S. bases. These, these were things that were kind of out there in the public sphere, but not something that people had spent a lot of time on. Um, so maybe thinking about how do you bring the stories that are at kind of the margin of the larger story. You know, in the case of the contractor story, you know, people were reading a lot about Iraq and Afghanistan, um, but this was something that was kind of considered on the sidelines of that. So thinking about, you know, how can we bring the things that are so often kind of pushed to the side of, of mainstream reporting into the center. And I think narrative is such a powerful way to do that because, you know, it's it's through actual connection to human characters that we start to maybe have our thinking altered on things that we otherwise feel like we don't need to know about or, or maybe things that we feel like we already know so much about, like, you know, CIs being such a common part of, of popular culture that we, we think that we already know what we need to know. But I, I think there's like a, there's another part of it that I'm interested in. So it's like you're gonna sort of shed light on it to readers. But these are these specific issues that you've tackled in the New Yorker are also issues that could be greatly helped by very specific policy changes. And so I, I wonder whether that's also part of the goal of what you're what you're trying to accomplish. That's so true. Insofar as you know, I'm interested in. I think investigative journalism is so much about looking at social injustice, but there's so many forms of like intractable, incredibly depressing, horrific things happening in our world every day. And so I, I do think a question I ask myself at the start of an investigation is like, where are the points of leverage? Where are the points of uh, where these otherwise uh, seemingly impossible problems actually could and should look different? Um, and so I guess the last three pieces I did all revolved around issues where there was like a really clear gap in policy. I mean, in the case of human tracking on U.S. military bases, the idea that these people were basically in a legal black hole. And same thing with the CIs and also with asset forfeiture. These are policies that are actually on the books as um, really problematic, not just issues that are kind of where, issues where people say, like, this is horrible, but what could we do? And but for me, I think a lot of it is kind of an emotional process of like figuring out what I really connect to, what strikes me as like, I need to have some moment when I'm researching or or hopefully many moments when I just feel that jaw dropping, my heart's beating faster. And I'm just, holy crap, like this feels morally relevant to me. I think that that's another big factor. Are you starting with the issue and then finding the sort of specific examples that illustrate that emotion? Or has it been that you've heard these anecdotes uh, of, you know, confidential informants getting murdered or, or, or these people on bases or whatever, and that's where it starts and you sort of like start looking and then you realize it's a larger thing and a larger issue? I would say a little bit of both, but for the most part, it's I've found it tends to start with some random moment of serendipity. Uh, like the confidential informant story actually began like years before I actually wrote it. I was at the gym uh, in college and I was watching Fox News, uh, not 
voluntarily, but it was the thing that was playing, and they had the little ticker tape scroll. To be fair, you went, you went to Yale. It's not surprising you were watching Fox News. There we go. <laughs> and they were talking about, I don't remember what program it was, but they were talking about the, Jessica Lunsford, this young girl who'd gone missing in Florida. And there was this massive, massive search party of people to find her. And they had this little ticker tape across the bottom of the screen. And it said, um, a body found in the lake was not Jessica. And my obvious question was, okay, like, who was this other person who was not Jessica? Because this was like a sign of relief. Like, yeah, we've been looking right. for Bo- Jessica. And bodies bodies so are Jessica, only, only relevant it. if they are Jessica bodies. Right. Which actually goes back to the theme when you asked me of like, you know, what is the the purpose of the stuff you're writing about. I think so often the kind of unifying theme is like, these are kind of the bodies that were not Jessica. These are the bodies that have been kind of pushed to the sideline of what we're told we should care about. And, you know, in in this particular case, I wound up that just that phrase stuck in my head. Um, And I wound up uh, calling the local sheriff's office down in Florida. And I just said, you know, who, who was this other person? And they gave me a name, uh, Donna Jelaine Cook, and so I just uh, searched around a bit, did a criminal background check, a public records search. And um, I found that it was this young woman uh, who'd been arrested multiple times, starting at a very young age uh, for prostitution. And, you know, that that stuck with me, too, that this was just considered, it seemed, uh, you know, a prostitute in the lake who wasn't Jessica. So I decided that summer uh, after I graduated I went down to Florida and I had, you know, just the, the public records that I'd gotten through the you know, background searches, which showed a number of different addresses. And I went and I tried to find this woman's family because uh, I thought it'd be interesting to look at, you know, how it was that this person became, you know, the not Jessica and maybe try to tell her story. Um, and I, I was having a miserable time finding her. And then ultimately, at the very end, uh, I found or finding this woman's family, and at, at the very end of the process, I found uh, the woman's sister, who told me that Donna had been working as a confidential informant, and she'd been getting a lot of death threats on her life. She was someone who was mentally disabled, and she hadn't been able to pay off uh, the fees for prostitution. So the police basically had offered her a deal where, you know, if she said uh, she would become a CI, they would let her off the hook for the fees that she couldn't pay. And she began getting threats, went to her family, went to the police looking for protection and wasn't offered much. And then I think it was about a week later, she wound up dead in the lake. So, you know, this really stuck with me, the idea that, you know, it seemed as if this this woman's family felt very strongly that because of her work as a CI, she had been, her life had been endangered and she'd been provided with no protection. Um, So I started looking around and seeing, you know, what the laws were on that. And I came across Rachel's Law, which is the law that I wound up writing about in my piece on informants, which surrounded the case of Rachel Hoffman, uh, the young college graduate who had been sort of coerced into or kind of pressured into working as a CI to to get off charges for pot and for ecstasy pills. Yeah, I want to talk to you more about her and about that story, but I I, want to go back just to, for a second to something you were just talking about. So h- how old were you when you started going after that story? I mean, how how old were you when you sort of followed up that on that I body think, you'd met, heard about in the gym? Yeah, I guess that was um, right after my senior year of college. So right, the summer after I graduated is when I went down to Florida. And this was an example of like, I just, I really didn't have the tools to know how to narrate a story or what to do with it. So Really, for that whole chunk of, I guess, four years or so that followed, um, I, I just 
I came across a lot of things that I knew like, wow, okay, something's here. Something's interesting and worth looking into, but I just really didn't know how to make good on it. So I went and did a lot of things that like really didn't amount to anything, but uh, you know, talking to people and, and learning stories. And in that case, kind of spent time with this woman's family. Um, were you, I mean, were you, did you, had you pitched that story? Did you have a place in mind you were going to write it for? Or you no, just like, I mean, I'm telling you're like, like I, you're like just graduated. You're like, I'm just going to Florida. <laughs> I had no sense of like, here's what's economically rational. Here's what's logistically rational. <laughs> I was really just making bad decisions all the time, mostly based on like, wow, this is interesting to me. And I want to tell this story. And you know, I wanted to, um, I, I did a master's thesis on kind of looking at the politics of missing white girls and how much, really, like how much fundamental U.S. policy has been crafted around, you know, the rhetoric of protecting young white women all the way back from, you know, the history of lynching, the history of kind of early anti-immigration policy, all the way up into present day kind of anti-pedophile policies, uh, and including actually uh, Jessica's Law, which came out of the case I was mentioning, uh, Jessica Lunsford, the girl who went missing in Florida. So, I definitely had a really a kind of academic and historical interest in how these policies were operating, but foremost, I was interested in the stories behind them. And uh, to me, that's what kind of the Jessica versus Donna Cook uh, story was was about. So I, I was really just following it because I cared about it and I was interested in it, but I didn't necessarily have a good sense of how to turn that into a long form story. Did you know how to go about reporting it? Like what? what how what was going through your mind when you like landed in florida <laughs> you know i i did a lot of things that now seem pretty laughable like i i had her uh photograph from the arrest records and i knew that she had worked in a strip club and i, I had no idea that like there are hundreds of strip clubs in tampa and it's not an effective strategy to go with this picture and just start talking to all the bodyguard guys at the door um so you know i did a lot of really just Wait, so you were you were like twenty two and going around to strip yeah. clubs in Tampa with a picture, being like, "Do you know? Did you know this woman? Have you seen this girl?" No, yeah, it was not. It was not effective. Um, <laughs> but I did. It actually did ultimately lead me to the the last address that I went to was turned out to be uh, a John who had hired her uh, at a certain point, and he told me, "Oh, actually, her mom or one of her relatives lives in this trailer down the road here." Um, and so I went and found uh, one of her relatives, and then that relative told me that her sister was living in Ohio. So then uh, a friend who's a photographer and I went and took a trip out to Ohio and found the sister. Um, so it was actually a pretty long roundabout road to that, and I knew I wanted to write about it. Um, but again, it just the, the shape it would ultimately take was not clear to me at that point. Um, and, and I never also have had any experience as a newspaper reporter or someone who has to kind of go into a scenario, get what you need to get, get out and write the piece. Mm -hmm. um, so that probably informs my long form strategy is the fact that like I never actually operated in an efficient world. And to me, there's so many ethical quandaries to journalism in the first place that involve kind of my anxiety about kind of cannibalizing the traumatic experiences of others that in a way... I've always felt it was a great gift to be able to have time to develop relationships with sources and, uh, you know, always making it clear from the get go that I'm, I'm a journalist and hope to write about this and, and where I'm coming from and why, but not, not rushing into like, you know, get the quotes I need and get out. I mean, I probably, I probably would have benefited from having the experience of you know, learning to shape a story quickly, but yeah, in maybe. that case, you're, it was you're doing like, fine, but we've had a couple people on who, who have who write about sort of like uh, tragedy and, and uh, uh, horrible things and horrible moments. How is that? I guess, how do you think about it? How do you think about what you're doing in terms of taking 
these stories and 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 uh, sharing them with these massive audiences. Yeah, I, I think it's hard because, you know, one thing I've really had to work on is realizing I think I used to have a kind of patronizing, preemptive desire to almost protect people from from themselves and from the really raw, vulnerable nature of certain trauma stories. And I, I realized that sometimes it would lead to me almost like kind of shutting down an interview or or kind of skirting around things that were really difficult. Um, and then in the process of reporting the story on uh uh, foreign contractors in Iraq, um, I had the experience of sitting in while a group of lawyers um, basically did, you know, a quasi-deposition or a kind of a preliminary interview with one of the Fijian women who'd been victimized by this process, uh, a beautician who'd been working in a salon after she'd been promised a job in Dubai and instead was taken to Iraq. And watching how the lawyers really kind of did this incredibly vigorous interview stretching from, you know, the very origins of uh, the Fijian women's recruitment all the way through to a bunch of really traumatic experiences sexual assault. And and watching how uh, the woman, Vinny, uh, responded to this kind of questioning and realizing it, it seems she actually felt really respected by the fact that someone cared enough to want to know the nitty gritty and wasn't kind of glazing over that, the emotionally rocky places. Um for me, I've had to realize, you know, respecting people's autonomy to choose uh, how they want to talk about and tell their stories, which, you know, of course means being transparent and upfront about where I'm coming from and what I'm doing, but also means respecting, you know, if someone wants to say something that causes them to cry torrentially or causes them to potentially put themselves in, in danger or risk, uh, you know, part of honoring that is, is, is creating the space to let them do that. Um, that's been tricky for me. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor this week, which is Hulu Plus. Kind of amazing. Hulu Plus, right? You know Hulu.com. You can go there and watch new episodes of all kinds of awesome TV shows, Saturday Night Live, Modern Family, South Park, all kinds of good stuff. They also have old TV shows like uh, Cheers. They've got, like, the full run of Cheers, and after GQ did that oral history a couple months ago, I went and, like, binge-watched tons of old Cheers episodes, which kind of don't hold up but anyway there's all kinds of great stuff on there including the whole criterion collection you really can't do better what hulu plus does is allow you to stream all that stuff so instead of having to watch on a computer you can watch it on your phone or your tablet or you can stream it straight to your tv which is what i do using roku no matter where you watch it hulu plus is just 7.99 a month even better even better right now if you go to huluplus.com slash longform that's huluplus.com slash longform you can try hulu plus for free for a couple of weeks Check it out. Try it. See if you like it. And just so we're clear about like uh, what's going on here, if you go to that URL, huluplus.com slash longform and sign up, that's really good for us. That's a way of supporting the show. Uh, and we appreciate your support. We also appreciate their support. Thanks to them for sponsoring. Um, more thank yous. Sarah Stillman, you remember her? She's the guest. We're going to get back to her now. All right. I'm going to uh, – I just need to check some uh, facts here quickly. Yes. Before we keep moving on. So uh, you have won the Overseas Press Club's Joe and Lori Dine Award, the Hillman Prize, the George Polk Award, the Michael Kelly Award, the Molly Prize, and a National Magazine Award. Is that right? God. <laughs> I, you know, that's another example where there's something just strange about you know, yes winning no prizes question. based on other yes people's no dramatic experience. Yes, that, that is correct. And, um, and how old are you again? 
I'm 29. Okay. Uh, so here's my next question. You're obviously um, uh, very smart and, and very talented. You're, you're uh, natural at this. You've had this like Fred Lynn-like rookie year. Why journalism? Why are you doing journalism? <laughs> like, it's so funny. I still feel like I have no idea what I'm doing because each time, I mean, I guess one amazing thing about journalism is that you probably never get tired of like all the different permutations on like the challenges that are created by like trying to tackle a long form story. I mean, I think you know, certainly each story I've done thus far has like thrown me for a loop or just made me feel like completely stymied at a given moment. And the idea that you get to dive into things that not only are really interesting intellectually and challenging intellectually, but also feel like they have some kind of, hopefully some kind of social meaning, like tackling, as we talked about before, things that feel, I guess, socially urgent. I feel like that's just an incredibly satisfying thing. And for me, I think the most satisfying thing has been spending time with sources and listening to sources who haven't necessarily uh, had their stories valued and listened to um, and getting to know people in that context. Um, I find one of the most rewarding things about reporting. I think it might be um, nice for people who are listening, younger journalists who are listening or, or older journalists who are listening um, to hear about maybe one of those moments where you felt super stymied in one of these stories. Cause I think like um, they come out and it all feels so kind of perfect, you know? And I think, it's hard to imagine that, that there was ever like bleak <laughs> moments where it feels like it wasn't going to happen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like every step along the way for me. I mean, especially uh, the first piece I did for the New Yorker, the the story about trafficking in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I, I had actually gotten this grant from NYU, the um, Carter Journalism Institute there, and they had really generously kind of given me this money, said, like, go report the rest of this story that I had kind of ineptly reported the beginnings of in 2008. Um, so I went back in 2010, I think it was, um, that summer, and I you know, gathered more material, gathered more reporting, found what I was hoping to find after kind of a long uh a long road to you know finding the right characters and all that and I got back and started pitching this story and found that like no one was interested <laughs> like I, I I really I spent months just you know sending out emails and you what, know what, I what, what were people objecting to well the the thing that stayed with me most is that I went to uh, an editor at a magazine that basically told me um verbatim uh you know, if you can repitch this and tell me, you know, in the Hollywood movie version of the story, who would Julia Roberts play, uh, then I would consider it. And uh, that, that, I mean, that, <laughs> okay, that Julia, was like the low. Julia Roberts <laughs> is in Fiji. <laughs> that was like, that was definitely the low moment of my journalistic career. Because at that point, I thought like, okay, I'm financially in shambles. There's, there's no, this is, even when I got so lucky as to like, at least have you know, the, the grant to go and report the stuff, I've. I thought I got things that to me were kind of definitely surprising, like the idea of all these workers being starved and rioting on the largest U.S. military base in Baghdad. And then, you know, came back and I kind of put together this pitch of all these different problems and realized, uh, I realized ultimately that kind of the charitable interpretation of that comment about Julia Roberts was that people need a character to care about uh and without that like you're just not going to get very far in a long form piece i had just listed you know all these outrages and you know certainly at that point in these wars like that was simply not enough to hook an editor you really had to have 
actual human beings who people can invest in not just people don't really care about issues so much as they care about like the stories and the characters that bring those issues to life which you know, sounds like a kind of trite realization but for me that was actually like a big shift in my thinking um i'm sure somewhere that editor is kicking himself and i'm gonna assume that it was a him kicking himself but i wonder <laughs> if <laughs> i wonder if that's do you think that that had anything to do with it i mean you were what 25 yeah i guess i would have been about 25 or 26 and and certainly i was completely untested and, and had no evidence that i actually knew how to even put a story together i mean i didn't even know that myself whether there would be any meaningful way and and right right before i wrote that story um while I was in Afghanistan, I did an embed with a mortuary affairs unit um, with the morgue in Kandahar. And I just, you know, I came back and I wrote up that story. Um, and I actually never showed it to really anyone but, like, my very closest friends. Uh, and it just was a bad story. And I couldn't figure it out because I thought, here are, it has what I thought would be the components of a workable story insofar as, you know, I, I basically put together a string of, anecdotes and things that I found interesting that I'd seen there. Um, and then I, I ultimately, it, it wound up being a very useful experience because I realized, again, another thing that should be pretty obvious from the get-go, but wasn't to me at that time, which is, you know, like a story needs an engine or something to propel you forward. And it can't just be a collection of like, oh, hmm, this was interesting over here and this was interesting over there. And so kind of that combined with the Julia Roberts comment helped me kind of sit down with all my stuff on trafficking and labor abuses in Iraq and Afghanistan and sit down and say, like, what are the five like, craziest things that I found here? And how could I weave them together in a way that would actually like have some forward motion? Um, mm -hmm. And that that was actually like a really, really helpful thing in my kind of thinking process about you know, how once you've done all this research and talked to all these people, how do you actually convert all those data points into some kind of meaningfully narrated long form piece. So as you're like uh, getting all of these no's all over the place and people are telling you to get more Julia Roberts in your story, were you changing the pitch? Like how did it, how did it finally land? You know what I ultimately did? Someone said to me, look, like why don't you just write the story and stop pitching the story and just <laughs> sit down and do the thing. And so I thought, okay, well, what would the sort of platonic ideal of my story and the outcome that I would want be? Um, so I sat down with a big stack of New Yorkers and just looked at their investigative work and looked at the stories that uh, maybe didn't mirror the theme, but mirrored the kind of structure of what I was aspiring to do and just thought, like, how could I consider the facts I have in, in this light and just kind of spent a lot of time kind of deconstructing uh, how these things were put together and and then just sat down and wrote the thing. Okay, so you, you sit down. How long does it take you to write the thing? <laughs> Probably about two months. You're sitting there. You're in, where are you? New York or D.C. at that point? I was point? actually on Orcas Island. Uh, so this little place Orcas up Island. close to Washington State. Yeah. I know Orcas Island very well. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah, yeah so that my, was a good uh, spot to just be kind of cloistered and, and write. I spent a lot of time there when I was a little kid. My like, uh, Oh, no way. Yeah, my mother yeah. grew up in Seattle. She used to take me to Orcas Island oh, once a year. Anyway, nice. <laughs> that is not interesting. What is interesting is that you spent two months trying to write a New Yorker story when you had never written anything like that before. Um, so you're sitting in Orcas Island, 
you write this what like ten thousand word story, fifteen thousand word story, something. You like know, that? it was actually twenty thousand words. Um, so maybe that reflects the fact that I didn't entirely grasp the whole concept. But yes, I I actually have tended to write most of my stories at probably double the length that they appear. Wow. Uh, okay, so you emerge from Orcas Island with this <laughs> twenty thousand word opus. What do you do next? Well, I I sent it off to an editor at the New Yorker. Um, uh, they were, I was lucky enough to have someone who was willing to actually read it. And, uh, did, did you like, did you know someone? Was it like a friend of a friend? Was it, it was like, a, yeah, it was a friend of a friend. Um, and so, uh, I just sent it off to this email address that I had for Henry Fender. And he was an incredibly gracious person who was willing to tackle this beast of a 20,000 word thing and turn it into, a. uh, an intelligible, I think nine or ten thousand word thing. So, what was in that story that got cut? Like, what, what, um, how did you, how did it get whittled down even more? You know, I think a sign of like what is, uh, why I trust and value my editor so much is that he has the ability to cut something in half and have me not tremendously miss anything and even have a hard time remembering what it was. But <laughs> yeah. I do remember in that case, actually, um, and actually, in most of my pieces, the thing that's been cut is. Uh, tends to be kind of the his- the historical elements looking at um in that case i was writing about um the tremendous like kind of explosive things that happened in some of the home countries of the workers who were recruited to iraq and afghanistan so ultimately it was interesting to me since i was so completely kind of obsessed with the issue but probably not as as urgently relevant to the average american reader right it, it, i mean what stayed in that story and, and what has sort of uh, a structure you've used again and again, I think, is you have these kind of main characters who are where you start and, and who get the uh, lion's share of the story. But there are supporting characters who maybe only get a you know a couple paragraphs or something, uh, but who are there, I think, to sort of, well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but it seems like they're there to sort of support the general idea without having to do the big, like, expository section on like this is a large trend yeah right because it's also you always want to steer clear of uh the tendency people have to just say oh this is a bad apple or this is some kind of anomalous example and most of the time like each of the stories that i've tried to squeeze in has seemed probably equally compelling to me in its own way but not all of them just from a narrative kind of mathematical function of like how much can people invest in and follow the particulars of a given person or set of people? It's always been kind of a quandary of how much can I pack in? How many, how many lives can actually come alive in a single, in the course of a single narrative without kind of losing the intensity of detail that one can lavish upon like a single character or a single, um, a single story. Um, So I guess one way I've tried to deal with that is often kind of having a, a main kind of protagonist who carries you from beginning to end, but then kind of opening up at various points along the way to kind of sub stories that illustrate particular dimensions of, of an issue. Yeah. I mean, is that, is that you, those characters, are they, are they there? How specific is the reason to bring them in? Like, like uh, what are you looking for, I guess, in those sort of supporting yeah. characters? Well, I mean, I, I think one example of something that has been ethically fraught for me as I think about that very question has been, um, when you're dealing with kind of the typical demographic of, you know, of New Yorker readers, for instance, I think the story I chose to look at as the prime story in the confidential informant piece was um, a young woman who, Rachel Hoffman, who actually fit a lot of the uh, 
who didn't fit your conventional notion of uh, the kind of person who'd be victimized by these policies. I mean, she was relatively privileged, um, was, you know, a recent college graduate, had parents who were very, very kind of attentive to uh, both the situation she found herself in, but then ultimately when she was killed, uh, really, really mobilized, uh, you know, got this legislation passed, uh, engaged in like a lot of kind of public debate about the issue. So in that sense, they were um, ideal and that they could lead uh, lead a reader through from beginning to end kind of their own their own process of uh, a lawsuit, for instance, that they'd engaged in, which I found, you know, when you're able to work with a lawyer who's really devoted to a case or a set of lawyers who are devoted to a case, um, which was also true in my last piece about forfeiture, it's so, so helpful to have someone who can really who who's already really invested in an issue, um, right. so that was that was also and, uh, and, part and, of why I made that choice, right? And like and fluent in the in the issue, exactly. You know, that, that, I think that makes a huge difference. Um, but then also the question for me has been then how do you use something that uh, use a character who might feel more familiar and relatable uh, to a reader, uh, and then use that to kind of open up on cases that. Uh, they might otherwise not be as inherently inclined to care about. I mean, I think that that's part of thinking about how to like subvert and challenge some of our ideas again about like whose voices matter. I think one really hard issue is that like news is inherently new and so often like violence against certain people is so quotidian. And the fact that, you know, for instance, what I mentioned about the idea of, you know, a sex worker being found dead is not, as easy to interest an editor in, but it doesn't mean that it's any less like relevant or meaningful to look at. Um, right. But I think one way to kind of deal with that, that, you know, I, I'm not still, I'm still not totally sure kind of where I stand on this, but I think it is one power of a kind of long form narrative where you can pack a number of different stories in a number of different ways into the overall arc is that you can get people to move from things that they feel more, uh, familiar or comfortable with the things that, that may shift their attention or kind of expand the boundaries of, of their empathy in a way. What kind of feedback have you gotten to these stories? Cause they are like the emotions that I think you're, you're saying sort of like are the genesis of the stories come through in the pieces. Like you, you read them and at least I, uh, my first reaction is like, uh, fucking fuck, you know, like <laughs> something need, this, like this can't, this can't, I mean, this can't yeah. keep happening like this. What has the reaction been from from readers? Well, you know, what's always interesting and in a way kind of frustrating is that you end up hearing from so many people who are affected by or have been affected by that set of issues who, you know, you're no longer in as good a position to do anything with the information that they're sharing. But often, you know, in the case of this forfeiture piece, I've heard from a lot of people who said, oh, that happened to me or that that is happening to me or that happened to my brother or my cousin or do those, hearing, do those people say like, "Will you please write about that?" <laughs> yeah, all the time, and it, it's it's tricky because you know I, I've tried to pass it along to other journalists who I know are working on the issue or think about other ways. I mean, one thing I really like about our, like, the current uh, moment in which like I'm doing this kind of work is that we all do now have more ways of dealing with uh, and putting out there all the other elements that don't end up in the story itself. So, you know, you can put something up on your website or I'm not like the most <laughs> social media savvy person, but I think now I'm realizing, you know, I, I definitely one of the hardest things for me often, um, both at the beginning and at the end, uh, is you know, what do you do with all the extra material where you've invested 
sometimes you've asked other people to invest their emotional energy in sharing something and then you don't necessarily know where the place for it is. You know, for instance, with the confidential informant story, I called so many families uh, and, and talked to a lot of people who had gone through pretty traumatic things, you know, losing their child. Uh, and in some cases, that story wasn't um, particularly right for you know, the narrative at hand, but still, uh, these people had spent, you know, an hour on the phone with me and gone through their documents and gotten their child's photograph. And, you know, how do you meaningfully, uh, and ethically kind of engage in the fact that you're not going to be able to use everything? Um, you know, in some ways it's a superficial solution to say, well, nowadays you can stick it up on the web or, you know, do something with it. But, uh, but I also definitely find that on the flip side, people contacting me to kind of share things after a story has come out. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I hadn't really thought about that before now, but it, it is like you you're tackling these huge issues and, and you've got so much more uh, than can fit in a story. But so it must be hard to figure out how, if at all, you can sort of like slip in the things that that ended up on the cutting room floor. Right. And give credit to the people who often have been working on these issues for a long time. I mean, forfeiture is not this totally new phenomenon that no one has talked about before. Um, I think that's another issue that you face in long form is, you know, uh, unlike an academic who is able to kind of give all these different citations and, and lead people in all these different directions. I mean, it'd be nice if long form could do more to kind of lead people to kind of different facets of an issue that they want to follow up on or because that's another thing I hear a lot from readers is oh well what can I do about this or how can I kind of stay engaged on this issue or how could I dive in uh more and um you know as a journalist it's not necessarily your job to be the activist and advocate but you know pointing people sometimes in the direction of of the sort of people who could uh who these people could kind of follow up with. I mean, that's another thing that comes up a lot. Yeah, I've been, uh, uh, I told myself I would not use this phrase before we talked, but I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> um, what you do is has some connections to advocacy journalism, which <laughs> is something that uh, <laughs> most people that I, uh, we've talked to a lot of people on the show who have kind of been like, that is exactly what I am not doing. Like, mm-hmm. all I care about is a story. I uh, am very aware and actually take a lot of steps to make it not feel that way. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. How do you think about that? Like, like, do you feel like you should have something that at the end of the story that's like, this is how you can help right this wrong? Yeah, I mean, I've never gone to that last step of like, here's who you can call or you know, that's just also not what the New Yorker does. But also like not telling people what to think or feel, because I think so often like in, in college, I wrote these like really ranty blog posts and realized that it's actually not always the most effective way to uh, make people think differently about or in more meaningfully about an issue. Uh Part of what can also be hard is when you're dealing with, um, as I often have, cases of, you know, lawsuits or where there is sort of ongoing litigation. It's often pretty hard to get the side of the people who are being sued uh, in a really robust way, which is something I've also found challenging because, you know, often those are people who have been who have not been in a great position to talk. So how do you make sure that you're doing justice to kind of the inevitably complicated sides of a story? Um because I think that's always more morally compelling. It's more realistic and true. And, and you know, if you're just going to do the kind of polemical stuff that, uh, you know, I think at a, at a certain moment I 
I tried and realized I was also just very bad at is, you know, I think it, it really helps to make a story uh, more engaging if, you know, of course you're able to get as real a take from all the different characters involved as you can. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really hard when there are people who uh, are understandably defensive and, and also on the receiving end of litigation that makes them significantly less likely to talk in an open way. Right. I mean, it's hard, too, when when the genesis of the story is sort of your own personal kind of like uh, emotional outrage. Have you ever been surprised by the other side? And pretty constantly. I think it's, it tends to be a pretty bad sign if you're not uh, surprised or challenged in the process. I mean, all the time. I don't even tend to usually think of it as like the other side. Um <laughs> Uh, I tend to go in just trying to listen to all the characters involved and find, you know, for instance, in Iraq, one of the public affairs officers in the military who really uh, helped me to get some of what I, uh, some of what I was looking for, was a person who never in a million years would I've guessed that this person would have been uh, as, first of all, as kind of secretly but strongly against a lot of what he was seeing in terms of contractor corruption and that he would have really kind of stuck his neck out to help me get the story. I mean, that to me was, if it, if I'd gone in with too many kind of preconceived notions of, of who this guy would be um, based on the fact that, you know, his introduction to me, he told me that his dad was in the KKK and that, you know, killed some people in that country. I mean, there were just all kinds of reasons why uh, when I initially met this person, I did not think they would be particularly receptive to the kind of reporting I was doing. Uh, and ultimately they wound up being a kind of behind the scenes character who's not mentioned in the piece. Um, and I find really frequently I'm, I'm challenged on all sides of it, including people who you often really, really want to be kind of quote, like pure victims. And you realize that's not really something that tends to exist. Almost always there are multiple levels to, or layers to, uh, to your characters that if you can't, find a way to uh genuinely engage that you're you probably shouldn't be doing you know the long form thing <laughs> right yeah you should just uh have like a placard <laughs> i have a a question that maybe is like i don't know a little fucked up to ask but i'm interested <laughs> go for it um well i like you're you are a 29 uh, year old woman um i've met you once before you you like um, even like look maybe a little bit younger than that and you've been doing this for a while how is that affected uh your reporting like your actual interviewing your actual going out to these courthouses and to these people and like diving into these issues how does being a young woman affect that a lot and you know it's something that i used to feel really frustrated about and feeling maybe i'm not going to be taken seriously or, or in some cases very clearly feeling like um i'm being treated as the in in some cases very young somewhat bumbling like person that I was showing up at a situation uh, and realizing that that can actually be an asset in some, um, certainly in some kind of investigative scenarios where, uh, you know, if I'd been the kind of established New York Times, like guy showing up at the scene who had uh, been a war correspondent for ages and knew how to demand what I wanted, I might not have gotten it. I think in, in some cases, you know, realizing every reporter is working with their own individual sets of like random personality quirks, like aesthetic issues, all the different things that come together to make you present the way you do. I think for me, there are, there are times when it's frustrating uh, 
to be a young woman reporting on the military or reporting in situations on you know, police violence. And there are times when it can actually help not to be taken seriously. What are those times? Uh, I'm thinking of instances in in Afghanistan or in Iraq where uh, because I was perceived as really non-threatening, uh, no one really bothered to pay attention to me or what I was doing and didn't they didn't bother to help with the story, but nor did they bother uh, like spending energy trying to thwart my reporting. Right. Um, and also just knowing it's not really an effective strategy for me to go in and uh, be that sort of stereotype of the war reporter or the conflict or investigative reporter who you see in movies who's like, tell me what I need to know. Like that's just not, doesn't go over well with me. And I think learning to play to the things that work for me interview style wise, uh, like spending a lot of time with people and uh, having them feel kind of comfortable with my presence um, has just been it's something I'm a lot better suited for. I feel a lot more comfortable that way. And then my sources end up feeling more comfortable. Is that something that came naturally to you? I mean, you know, it sounds like you were kind of like learning a lot of the journalistic stuff on the fly, but did relating to people and and, uh, sitting down with folks and getting them to open up to that, is that something that you've always been able to do? Well, I was definitely very, very nervous at first. And sometimes I still do get, get nervous and reaching out to people. But for the most part now, I think I've always really liked listening to people's stories and I think that that is certainly something my guess is people have a pretty good intuition about uh the genuine nature of someone's inquiry and I think sometimes I I show up in a lot of circumstances where people are initially just kind of confused about why someone would be asking about them or their situation like definitely that was true in the case I first mentioned down in Florida when I went to try to find this woman's family and it, it just wasn't adding up to people. Like, why on earth would you be asking me these things? But I think it people can pretty quickly suss out like a genuine interest in in them and their stories. And people tend to really want. Most people want to want to talk and want to talk about the things that things that they care about, but also even things that are hard uh, when they can tell someone on the listening end of that actually is genuine in their intentions. Here's the thing I'm wondering about. I feel like. Um... <laughs> there's like a, this tremendous pressure. If you like go into like any newsroom in America, there's some guy whose job it is to like tell people to be on Twitter. You know, mm. there's like a guy who's like, like uh, we're, you, you need to be doing that stuff if you're going to be a journalist in 2012 or 2013 or whatever year it is. You do not do that. <laughs> you were, you were not on, you were not on the Twitter. You seem to have uh, not a large internet presence aside from like a sort of personal site where you put up your stuff. Um, What's that about? How how have you gotten to this place without doing that? I feel like the like the line is like <laughs> you need to be if you're going to ju- be a journalist you need to be self promotional, and it seems like <laughs> you have gotten to the point that a bunch of people would love to get to without doing that. Well, I think part of it is that I'm honestly really temperamentally ill suited for uh, for both investigative work in the sense that I'm kind of conflict averse, and also for things that require kind of being out there in the, not to say the spotlight, but just being a public presence in a way, I think I'm drawn to writing precisely because it's, it's really private in a lot of ways. You can really sit at your computer and work with the words until they actually represent, you know, what the thoughts are in your head. Whereas when I'm speaking 
off the cuff. I've never really felt that way. In fact, I've always felt like it's really, really hard for me to communicate verbally. And in, you've, been doing in some... a lot, you've been doing a lot better communicating verbally than I have. So. <laughs> I somehow feel like if, ever since I was like pretty young, I've actually, that's been what's, what I found appealing about writing as opposed to speaking. And in a way, I almost view Twitter as kind of an extension of the speaking self. And I, I just never felt comfortable. I'm just a really kind of, in some ways, a nervous and anxious person about uh, about that. And I figure if there's a way to, I, I'm actually kind of a Twitter worker. <laughs> I, I have a Twitter account and I read Twitter and I definitely benefit from, you know, following people who are working on issues that I care about. And I, I'm definitely, it's not like I'm a Luddite, like not constantly on my computer person. Um, yeah. I think there's also like a thing that's come up a lot on the, on the show is like um, people who got their start at small daily newspapers and like in far flung cities. And they did a bunch of probably not very good work that no one can find that's like lost <laughs> to the world. And, you know, that's, there's two things about that, that, that are significant one is a lot of those jobs are gone now and and i have like real concerns about like how anyone gets better at this because not everyone sarah you should know like not everyone um just like holds up in a house and writes a new yorker story that wins a national magazine award that doesn't always happen so i worry that there aren't jobs where people can sort of like get better anonymously or like quasi anonymously and then like try and come with some chops when they've got the chops you know but the other thing is like if you are trying to do it it's all so public. It's all totally out there. Like all of your, you know, early fumbling is there. Yeah. Uh, oh my God. And it can be so paralyzing because I definitely, definitely grappled with that. And I, and I went through a really paralyzed period, maybe four or five years where I honestly just didn't really, I wrote things. I, I didn't publish them for the most part. And I heard Ira Glass speak and he offered this kind of really wonderful explanation of that phenomenon where he talked about kind of the way in which uh, taste you know, as a facet of cognition just advances so much more quickly than all your other skills, including like the skill to actually like satisfy those tastes. And so as a writer or in his case, you know, as a radio person, you, your ability to judge like how crappy something you're doing is advances so much more quickly than your ability to like write better or be better or broadcast better. Um, I think that that can be especially kind of, awful feeling in an internet age where you feel like everything is out there permanently and you can't really learn in private. Yeah. Um, and you know, what do you do when you're in that stage where you can recognize like, well, I'm really humiliated by what I'm writing, but I can't necessarily figure out how the only way to make it better is to just keep doing it. I part of the reason I asked you about that is because I went and tried to find a lot, a lot of like, you know, early stuff, sort of pre New Yorker stuff of yours. And there's not <laughs> a lot, but I found one thing, which I want to ask you uh, about. Really? Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. It's called um, Soul Searching, A Girl's Guide to Finding Herself. <laughs> right. That falls squarely in the category of embarrassing things one later has to account for. But yes, that does exist. Well, I, I, um, I did not, I was not able to buy a copy in time. Darn. So I have not actually read <laughs> what it. What a shame. <laughs> but um, Soul Searching, A Girl's Guide to Finding Herself is a self-help book that you wrote when you were a teenager. Is that right? I that's true. Yeah, that was a, a great example of like in supreme nerdiness and not feeling super comfortable socially. I just kind of poured some of my energies into into writing that. Yes, that um, <laughs> was filled with I think every third sentence ends in an exclamation point. <laughs> that's crazy, though. You wrote a book when you were a teenager. That's a that's a crazy thing to do. 
<laughs> oh god there's something a little like deranged about offering advice at, at an age when you're like sorely in need of it but do you still hear from people about that book you know i do because i had an email address um put in the in the opening pages of the book and so i will get like emails like you know can you help me interpret my dream uh can you like help me with my boyfriend <laughs> like all i get all kinds of really random and kind of wonderful stuff i mean i do the one thing i do feel good about is like i mean i, I do think uh hearing from young women and realizing there's just so little that actually takes young women's voices seriously and uh, I think now there's actually like a much greater space for for girls who care about things that are more than like the kind of Seventeen magazine fair. But I think yeah, you it's were always like, nice. You were to... like a precursor to Rookie. Oh, is that the um, Tavi? Yeah, magazine. Oh, yeah, it's Big totally fan. great. Yes, that is totally great. She is she is a personal hero. Uh, what do you want to do next? What comes What comes next? You're 29 and you've already reached the like the pinnacle of this stuff. What do you want to do next? Oh God! Wow, <laughs> I definitely, uh, I, I still feel like, like I've said, I every story is pretty big challenge for me. Just figuring out, you know, how do you even put together like something that will keep people's attention? So, I feel like every every time I'm doing this, I'm still, uh, and again, probably will be for a long time. Just just figuring out like the things that feel like they should be really, really, really rudimentary. Um, so, as flattered as I am to hear you say that, I I, I still feel like. I'm pretty in the groove of, of trying to learn the kind of the magazine style thing, how to consistently work on pieces that I, that are on issues that I really care about. And, you know, at some point I'd love to write a book, but I'm people, you know, have asked me about, about that. And I've, uh, I guess I still feel like the challenge of long form still feels so compelling to me that um, I could imagine doing this for many more years. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> thank you. I'm looking forward to whatever comes next. Um, thank you very much, Sarah, for uh, for taking the time for, for dealing with all of our ridiculous scheduling stuff. And uh, I think Skype worked okay. Yeah, no, it's really great to talk. And I love, I love the podcast you're doing. So thanks for that. Cool. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lemmer. Our excellent editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our jack-of-all-trades fixer extraordinaire is Robin Jodlowski. Robin's from the University of Pittsburgh's writing department, which has supported Longform for a long time, and we appreciate that. Same goes for tinyletter.com and Hulu Plus. Go support the show. Go to huluplus.com longform. Try it out for free for a couple of weeks. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry about when I asked you about your book, I think, but I'm not really sorry. Okay, we'll be back next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. 
You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.